Hello and welcome to another episode of my weekly show. I'm Father Roderick, and today we have a lot of things to talk about. First of all, just came back from the movies literally half an hour ago. I was still watching the end credits of the movie Aladdin, so I'll give you my full review. And of course, we need to talk Star Wars and lots of it. So stay tuned and keep listening. This episode of the podcast is brought to you thanks to my patrons and thanks to their support on a monthly basis. I can bring you this stuff without any advertisements, without having to plug, I don't know, meals that you can prepare at home or mattresses or whatever. You know, <laughs> lots of podcasts have those ads, but I have patrons and I really appreciate that. If you want to support me also, just go to patreon.com slash Father Roderick and take a look. Do you know what's going on? This is what's happening in your world. Hey, said Catholics rule. We got Boston, South America, the good part of Ireland, and we're making serious inroads in Mozambique, baby. You've taken your first step into a larger world. If you listen to my other show, The Walk, that you can find over at Tridio.com, you may have already heard that this has been quite a... Can I call it an interesting week? Uh, Also a testing week. My parents both have uh, uh, serious health issues, especially my my father. He has to be treated uh, on Monday. And, of course, uh, the kids, I have a brother and a sister, we're, uh, we're trying to help wherever we can. Um, but my parents are both 77 years old, so it, it is always a bit risky. It always uh, makes you a bit worried about what the next steps are going to be. So your pr- your prayers would be uh, greatly appreciated. And I, I also um, I also always think of, of people that have already gone through this situation and may have lost their parents or have uh, parents that are also struggling with, uh, with health issues. Um, it, it does take its toll on the entire family. Uh, and on the other on the other hand, I I also try to to always stay calm and uh, and and also have confidence. Um, in in the end, our our lives are in the hands of God, and health is a relative thing. It's a very very precious gift if you have it, but there will be a time in your life where you have to hand it back, and uh, your strength and your youth and uh, your mobility that will all change and and may disappear completely. So. Seeing my parents suffer is is hard, um, and at the same time, it also makes me realize that, well, twenty years from now, thirty years from now, I'll be I'll be at the same age. I'll have maybe in in a, in the same situation as well. So makes you also very grateful of what you have and what you can still do, among other things, podcasting. Speaking of which, we need to talk movies, and uh, as I mentioned in the intro. I want to talk about the, this movie that I just saw, Aladdin, the live-action version. Um, one in a, a row of, of many of these these remakes, uh, ways for Disney, of course, to take something that is loved by a lot of people, give it a new spin, and make us also pay again. <laughs> it's kind of what George Lucas has been doing for the past 50 years. <laughs> How do you not like movies? They're predictable, like... The guy gets the girl, and that kid sees dead people, and Darth Vader is Luke's father. Not liking movies is like not liking puppies. They're fine. I just get bored and never make it to the end. You know, you need a movie education. You need a movication. I'm going to give it to you. With The Little Mermaid, uh, Aladdin is uh, in the top three of my favorite Disney movies. Uh, the third one actually is Enchanted, which is a live-action movie. Um, I love this, and I, I love them not not in the, in the first place because of the story or the animation, but because of the songs. Uh, Alan Menken has written amazing music for uh, for these movies, and I think set the golden standard of any musical, any and especially Disney musicals, and. I think, even though I appreciate what they've done with Frozen, and that may work very well for a new generation, I think that nothing really has has been able to match the quality of what we saw and heard in Aladdin and The Little Mermaid. So I was looking forward to seeing the live-action version of Aladdin and also uh, looking forward to it with a bit of trepidation because, of course, uh, the genie was played by Robin Williams, and every time... You, you think Aladdin, you think of the genius and 
and the the amazing humor that he brought to the world. And of course, also there's a bit of sadness because he's no longer among us. And uh, but his legacy is is something that we'll, we'll 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 cherish for many many generations to come. I think, and especially his uh, his portrayal of the genie, which is very very hard to come up with. Almost everything that he did for Disney was improvised, and that's why it was so funny. And and uh, they had a myriad of jokes to choose from. They had to restrict, like cut it down to like the best of the best. And that gave us, I think, a a, a, a genie and at the heart of the movie that worked so well. And I was wondering, can they match that, or, or are they going to tarnish the kind of the legacy of that movie? The second thing I already mentioned uh, is the music. The songs are so good, and a lot of these songs have heart. I I can't listen to A Whole New World without tearing up. And that's the original version, right? So when I saw the trailer in in the movies, and it was attached to a lot of uh, other movies that I've seen, I was super excited. It looked amazing. It was so colorful, and I I thought that the two main characters were spot on, um, really great live action versions of their animated counterparts, and the the music felt similar. Uh, even they kind of upped it a little bit, gave it even more oomph than the original one. Um, the jokes that they showed in the trailer were funny, and it was fast paced. And then, of course, there was a little bit of uh, uproar about Will Smith's portrayal of the genie. I think for a lot of people, that was also well. I guess we have a new actor portraying the genie, so that means we have to say goodbye to Robin Williams' portrayal. So there was a bit of sadness, and I don't think it, it was due to you know a mistake or, or or fault in in Will Smith's portrayal. It's just a very different genie, and it's very much Will Smith. And uh, I think that for a lot of people, that that took some time to process. It definitely did for me. So I the first few minutes of the live action movie, I was mesmerized. I was sitting there with a huge smile on my face, even though I watched this in a matinee. Uh, the, there were quite a few people in the, in the theater. Now, this is, of course, also the premiere week, so it's kind of obvious that there are more people watching this than normal. Um, but I was enjoying the ride. It just felt like just everything was so well executed and so beautiful. And I also loved how they created a very small um, encapsulating narrative for for the movie that for the story that we know. And I think they did it really well. And the payoff at the end is also very very nicely done. So the my initial impression was really wonderful i love the 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 first time we meet the street rat you know aladdin and uh, uh, his monkey it was all oh, the animation is fantastic there were only very few moments that that you could tell that there was a lot of cgi involved but most of the time it was almost flawless and uh, the the music worked great the choreography was amazing there's a lot of dancing there's a lot of jumping and 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 uh, it, it it was really, really good. And then there was the first the first moment that I started to wonder, well, hmm, I'm not sure if this works as well as the original, was when they introduced Jafar. Now, Jafar is, of course, one of those classic evil uh, bad guys uh, of the Disney universe. And I love the way that Jafar looked. And, and he was so grim and... and Ugh, unpleasant and literally the way he was animated and 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 designed was very menacing and in this movie Jafar is played by a very young actor who's got a bit of what you call it like a baby face he's he's too smooth he's too good looking for a bad guy and and he he's got this high-pitched voice like he, he speaks like that but Bad guys, you kind of associate that with, he needs to have a very strong, evil voice. But <laughs> instead, he's like, oh, I'm really evil. And like, um, not sure if this is going to work. Of course, you kind of give it the benefit of the doubt. Perhaps later on, this 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 character will get more, r- some rougher edges, will become a bit more menacing. But alas, no, that's not the case. He kind of stays this muted version of Jafar and uh, and also um, the the parrot 
that is in the original of, of a, a funny character, they uh, they hired John Oliver to to voice him. So I was expecting great jokes, and instead, he just John Oliver just sounds like a parrot, and there's. There's nothing funny about it. That it's like, what a waste of a character. And what a waste of a very, probably very expensive contract. So I don't know why they, 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 they try, I think they tried to make the, the parrot too realistic, even in the way he speaks, but then they take away the whole purpose of that animal. So it was, I mean, the monkey was actually funnier and better than, than, than well, the parrot. So that was also a bit disappointing. The main characters, uh, I thought they were very convincing in the trailer. Um, when you get to meet them, I really liked the character of Aladdin, even though I felt that the actor was a slightly too old for for the character that he wanted to portray. Um, there's much more youthfulness uh, in in the original animated version. And this guy is a, a little bit too old to be, like, jumping around and, and behaving like a scoundrel. Um, the princess is a great actress, too. Uh, amazing singing voice. Um, I'll, I'll get to the singing later, because I have some uh, remarks uh, about that as well. Um, but uh, she's beautiful um, and totally kind of matches the... The, like if you have to come up with a real life version of the of the uh, of the jaz- jasmine that we know from the from the original, then this is the perfect princess. Until she starts to act and speak, and then I was like, "Wow, that is so American!" Like everything about her, her intonation, her voice, even the way she sings, uh, the way she behaves, is like you don't. I did not believe for a second that she was anything else but an American uh, princess. And so it, it kind of breaks, for me, it broke the immersion because we, we first get to introduce you a lot of kind of more characters and, and actors that, that do evoke that, that kind of that, that exotic feel. And then you hear her and it's like, oh, that's a great American singing voice. And, but it feels like glee. You know, this is like, oh, it's a, it's a great impersonation. It's a, a great version, a glee version of the, of the, of the real princess. And then you're like, no, that is actually, <laughs> that's her. I mean, uh, and then she has this handmaiden. And then I don't, I was like the entire movie. I was thinking, who is that actress? I know her. She also feels kind of out of place. Like, looks way too Western too. And she's got a very, um, distinctive face now i need to google who she is because i like i have seen her in so many movies and i cannot figure out who that is and I, at the same time was also like that is she doesn't belong in the story it's i mean it's a fine actress but it doesn't fit with the vibe you 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 need for this movie it 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 it, it, it takes you out of the experience all right let's see adventures of aladdin oh wait that is a <laughs> That's a B-movie version of that. I was typing in Aladdin. Let's see. Aladdin uh, to 2019. All right. Let's take a look at the uh, cast. Um, So Will Smith is a genie, of course. Uh, Mina Masood plays Aladdin. And I think he did great. Uh, He's, he's, by the way, a good singer, a good, even better dancer. However, his voice is not as powerful as Naomi Scott, who plays Jasmine. She's much more, she's much more stage presence. And so he's kind of overwhelmed. And that actually is also true for the entire story. Jasmine in this version of Aladdin is so much more important and, and more powerful than Aladdin. So if you would just know this version, you would have called the movie Jasmine and not Aladdin. Because Aladdin is kind of a sidekick in this story. Um but anyway, let's see. Marvin Kanzari plays Jafar. And someone told me that he was Dutch, which is kind of interesting, if that's the case. Uh, yeah, he's a Dutch actor. And he is also known from Ben-Hur. Interesting. I did not recognize him in Murder on the Orient Express. He hasn't done that many movies. Well, actually, he has done a lot of Dutch movies. Oh, he's been in a Dutch TV series. Okay, so, but... Mm, fine actor, but again, it's not the Jafar that you kind of expect. Uh, the Sultan was great. Uh, all right, so 
Delia, or De- is that how you pronounce it? Delia is played by Nassim Padrat. So she may actually not be very well known. Huh. She's an American actress and comedian. Best known from her five seasons as a cast member on Saturday Night Live. That's it. That's it. So, okay, Saturday Night Live. Uh-huh. Let's see if she's in other movies. New Girl. Uh, let's see where else. Not too many. Despicable Me, a small role. She's been in ER. That's probably where, why I recognized her, because I've watched ER religiously. So she's from ER. Nurse Suri. Anyway, again, good actress, but just too way too American. It's like, God, I wish they would have done something a little bit more oriental, and I don't know. So what about the story? As usual with these live-action movies and versions, they kind of take the story that you know and they try to modernize it a little bit. And with some of these, like Cinderella, they actually changed a, a, a large part of the story and also the the kind of the the balance of the of the story to give it a new spin. And and I like that. With Aladdin, actually, they stay pretty close to the original story. And I don't think they had much wiggle room because if you if you change it too much then you start to feel distant because people really want to relive, especially the people from, let's say, the parents of the children. Children have only seen this version, probably. But the parents, they want to still recognize the movie that they remember. And visually, that is absolutely a success. But However, I think in terms of the story, what they tried to do um, was give it a little bit of a more modern edge, but it felt, to me, a bit ham-fisted, and I will explain why. This is this is, of course, supposed to be Aladdin's story. This poor street rat that you know gets to make three wishes thanks to the genie, and then wishes that he can be a prince so he can marry um, th- this princess. And of course, it's it's a story. Ultimately, it's a, it's a, a a parable about you know tr- trying to be someone you're not, and that true love requires you to be, to be honest. That is kind of the gist of the story. Well, in this movie, they kind of shift the emphasis for, from Aladdin, kind of halfway through the movie, to towards Jasmine, and Jasmine is this princess who needs to marry so her future husband can be the successor to the Sultan. But then they turn it into, oh, it's all about women being repressed and not having a voice. And she has to marry not out of love, but out of obligation to her people. But she is actually, she should be the ruler. She should be the new sultan. But of course, in this backwards society, culturally, that is not possible. They, they kind of avoid any religious connotation there. But And then the, there are a few new songs and new or it's actually one song that's broken up in two two moments where she is kind of channeling the, the characters of frozen uh especially the, the 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 ice queen and even the the music itself sounds like frozen and it's all about like i will not be repressed i will use my voice i am here and see me and blah 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 and I mean, that is a very, I'm very much in favor of what it tries to tell, you know, that, that women are not second, second rank, how you say that? Like secondary characters in the store, shouldn't be secondary characters. But as usual with, with Disney, and they've done this a lot also in Star Wars, they kind of not only try to balance it, but they overcompensate. And all of a sudden, this, it's all about Jasmine's liberation of this oppressive male society. Now, that may strike a chord and may be something that is necessary in our culture for, for this to happen. And uh, fairy tales also reflect our the current issues, and otherwise you, you can't call it modern anymore. But in this case, with this particular story, and that's my criticism, it took away the message of this movie. This is not about uh, emancipation or about uh, giving voice to women. That is all great, but that was not what the original story was about. This was about being honest, being your true self, and about true love that cannot be about appearances, but should be about the heart. And and so I felt that, that all of a sudden this movie just, just pivots into this 
kind of the kind of the, the thing that, that Disney has been doing for the past few years, and it's like, oh, we've been there, done that. And it felt a bit forced and unnatural. And I, I have to say, and this may be just me being an old guy and being way too nostalgic about the original movie, but the songs did not work. The new songs did not work. That that song where Jasmine is like, oh, I will not be silenced. And it, the style is so different from, from what Mencken wrote. It is... Um, it, it felt like the, that's a song, that's a cover song from another movie. Or the, actually, it's a pop song that they just did, just wanted to have a, a, a number one hit. So they took this pop song and, and just kind of forced it into the story. And it feels so wrong. Even the, the camera move, the, the cinematography changes during the, that song. And all of a sudden, you're in a, like you're in a pop music video. And it was like, why? It's not necessary. This story doesn't need it. And even for to for you to appreciate the female role uh, of Jasmine and her desire to be free instead of being in... Because the original story had that theme of because she was a princess, she was not free to be herself. But then they, they overcompensate and it becomes way too much about just Jasmine. Whereas it's about these two people that have to become their true self. And I don't know. I uh, just there the, the were it was a bit jarring. Um, did it ruin the movie? No, certainly not. But it 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 did. I I had to give it a lower grade than I was initially uh, inclined to do. Uh, let's a final word about the genie. I I think Will Smith was great. It was really good. Um, very different genie, which I appreciated. It's funny. It's totally Will Smith. If you like his style, if you like his kind of humor, then then you're going to love this. I, I really liked it because I'm a fan of Will Smith. He even it has got the same big ears that he's always had. So there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of heart in, in the way that he portrays the genie. And he's so different that you don't really um, compare it to Robin Williams' version of the genie. That is a very, very different, that's a different universe. And, and so that, I'm, I'm glad because that legacy stands as it is. Um, but I really like the, the, the way that they, that they um, also developed a little bit of his his character arc in this movie, and because it's live action, it works better, I think, in a way uh, than in the, the original. So, so the genie really compensates for some of the m- criticism that I may have for this movie. Um, but all in all, when the movie is done, how did I feel? I was like, oh, I love this. This was great. This was a spectacle, and I enjoyed myself and. But it it made me want to go back to the original and rewatch that, and especially to go listen to the original soundtrack. Oh, one last thing. Speaking about the soundtrack in the trailer, and it may just be me. I haven't checked yet. Um, I loved the new uh, orchestration of a whole new world. They show you this this, and it's the best song perhaps ever written uh, in the history of Disney. So is this duet, and, and it's, they're on the flying carpet, and in the trailer, I was getting goosebumps. I was like, oh, this is such a great version. And then she, the, the actress sings so well. And so I was like, ah, oh, this is it. And then you see the, the song in the movie, in the, in the final movie, and I don't know if they changed the orchestration or it's just the pace of the movie is different from the trailer, but something was different about it. And I was like, huh. This is not this is not as good as it sounded in the trailer, and and it's uh, the orchestration is a little bit bland, and they change it a little bit just to change it. There are a few chords that they've changed, and I was like, ah, what do you do? This orchestration is so much worse than the original one, and the, just to make it sound differently, ah. So again, this is my first initial impressions. My my. I came straight out of the theater, sat behind a microphone and recorded this. And in the past, I've been kind of changing my mind on some of those songs and some movies uh, before I initially did not like any of the songs of Frozen. Um, And, well, I had the same problem here. It's like, oh, that sounds like Frozen, and I don't like Frozen. I don't like that style of singing. It's not Disney. Um, Who am I to say what what Disney is? It's not the Disney that that I like. Uh, but the younger generation may love this. I don't know. But it, it just feels a bit, I don't know. The, the Some of the changes were unnecessary, and I think 
didn't didn't do the movie much good. Um, so, what's my final what final score that I final rating that I final grade that I give this movie? I would give it between a seven and an eight. I want to give it an eight. Actually, in the beginning of the movie, I wanted to give it a nine, and then I was like, oh, eight. Oh, it's good. It's good. It's good. And then I was like, oh, that song. Okay, well, I don't know about that eight. Perhaps eight minus seven and a half, something like that. Anyway, love to hear what you thought of the movie. So if you've seen it, let me know in the comments. I want to hear if I'm wrong and why I should reconsider. And if you think I'm right, then of course that also strokes my ego. <laughs> All right, time for the peculiar bunch. <laughs> Catholics rock. Here at the Peculiar Bunch, we're always happy to tell you everything you always wanted to know about Catholics, but you were afraid to ask. Catholics can be a peculiar bunch. No meat on Friday. No meat? What do they eat? Light bulbs? So today we need to talk about confession. And don't worry, I'm not going to confess here live on the air. Are we? We're actually not on the air. We're in your mobile device. Man, you guys got more crazy rules than Blockbuster Video. We need to talk about confession, which is one of the sacraments of the Catholic Church, and and a very dear one to me. Uh, Basically, confession is what Jesus tells his apostles. You know, those whose sins you forgive, those sins will be forgiven. If you don't forgive people their sins, then they will not be forgiven. So this, this forgiveness that Jesus himself has always given to the people that come to him with contrition, um, he gives that same forgiving power. That, by the way, w- was very scandalizing for, for his contemporaries. You may remember that story where um, Jesus is surrounded with a huge crowd. He's in a house, and he's helping people and healing and praying with them and telling stories and whatnot. And then there is this person who is on a bed, can't walk, he is uh, uh, lame, <laughs> literally lame. And But his friends carry him on the roof, open the roof, and lower him with a few ropes so that he lands in front of Jesus. And then the first thing that Jesus says is not, I will cure you, go walk. Jesus tells him, your sins are forgiven. And then that's the moment that the 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 pious Jews are like, but that's not, you can't do that. Only God can forgive sins. So that's a very clear statement by Jesus that he can't forgive sins. And then he's like, well, you know, what's easier to forgive someone his or her sins or to tell someone just stand up and pick up your bed and walk? Well, to 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 let you know that the, the son of man has the power to forgive sins, there you go. Stand up, take your bed, and go home. And that's what happens. So it's, it's very clear. That story is included in the gospel to, to make sure that we know that Jesus is, has the power to forgive sins. And a sin, what is a sin? A sin is basically uh, uh, not acting out of love, not, not seeking love in what you do, but seeking the opposite or walking away from love. That is sin in a nutshell. And that can be in very small things. We call that venial sins in the Catholic tradition. Um, so, but it can also be in a very grave matter where you completely do the opposite of, of what uh, a loving person would do. And you kind of break love. You, 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 you break away from love. And we call that a mortal sin because if you don't, if there's nothing in you that chooses love or that is open to love, you're dead. Because we live out of love. The, uh, God created us with love. His, his uh, ruach in, in, in Hebrew, his, his breath, the soul that he gave us, is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit in the Catholic and in Christian theology in general is defined by love. That is the love between the Father. So, in a sense, the, what we breathe, the, way that we, the fact that we live is because we are created with love. And so... Once we completely step away from love, that's where we find death. And um, and God cannot do anything because he has given us the freedom to walk away from his love. So, um, and what is, what is confession? Confession is basically uh, the church that helps you turn back to love. It is the church that mediates God's love, who, who is, uh, God's love is in, in both all-powerful and also completely powerless because love lets the other person be. And so God is 
with with his love we can we can move mountains we can we can do anything we want um but without love we're lost and so but god is waiting for us to return and wants us to feel and to hear that he forgives us and that is why in the catholic church we have this tradition of priests that in and and this is based on that passage in the gospel where jesus tells his apostles uh, that they have the authority to forgive sins in his name. It's not the, the particular person, that, that human being that forgives. It's always God who forgives, but it's mediated through, through, uh, through priests. And so uh, confession is that. Now you can imagine that if, if confession is, and I mean the word confession is just one part of the sacrament. It's I confess, I I say out loud, and thereby I, I acknowledge what I've done wrong and where I stepped away from love. But the other part of the sacrament is forgiveness. So it is both confession and reconciliation. It is us being embraced by the Father again and, and becoming one with God again. And so it's a very, very powerful sacrament. It can be extremely healing. But you can also imagine that that God really wants you to be free and safe to return to him. There's no coercion possible in the sacrament of confession uh, and reconciliation. Love is something intimately private and personal. And um, it's the sacrament itself is God who listens to to those sins, and so it's always a conversation. Sometimes when people have difficulty um, speaking up or or, or or voicing out their sins, because people can do terrible things, and sometimes it's very hard to hear yourself say what you've done, what you know you've done, but to hear you say it, it's it's very hard. I sometimes encourage them to just talk to God, just tell your sins in in form of a prayer, because it's God who's listening. The priest is there to to transmit God's forgiveness, but we are also just a vessel. We are supposed to completely forget what the person in confession has told us. And that is actually a grace that we, at least that I have many times received where someone comes to confession and you have a conversation with that person and you give some advice and then you forgive that person and then the confession for me is gone. I don't even recall the person sometimes or what that person said. Um, and that's what it's supposed to be because a, the, the, a sacrament is an encounter be, between God and you. And that should not... And that is why... Now I'm going, getting to the point of, of what I was going to say. That is why the seal of confession is so vital for uh, the Catholic Church. And what do I mean with the seal of confession? It is this obligation for the priest to never release anything that has been said in confession. So the seal means that whatever you say to a priest when you are confessing your sins will forever be a secret. Not because it needs to be hidden or because you want to escape consequences, but because love wants to restore people and give them the chance to start anew. And as soon as, as confession is not entirely secure and private and secret anymore, then that may withhold people to make that final step towards God. They may still feel like there, there's something is, 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 is keeping me away from God or is, it, is, it, it, it creates a wall, a barrier for that person to be totally free before God. Now that doesn't mean that the priest can should always no matter what the person confesses should always grant automatically forgiveness and then that person can just go on uh, with doing evil deeds. That's not the way that's kind of the caricature that sometimes uh, people uh, create about the sacrament. But it is uh, what the priest is called to do is to judge, to listen, and also to make a certain judgment about the veracity, the sincerity of the person who is asking for forgiveness, and also the resolution to not sin again. 
And of course, the priest needs to be formed really well, spiritually, pastorally, and also psychologically, because that is part of our, of our formation, to make sure that the contrition is true. And it, it doesn't, of course, you cannot guarantee that that person won't sin uh, ever again. And you know, because we ourselves as priests are also sinners. And so we know that we fall and we fall back in the sins that we've confessed before. But at that moment, the resolution of starting again and to step away from evil and to turn towards love has to be genuine. And if that's not the case, if you, if you, if you sense and judge that that person is holding something back or maybe just asking for forgiveness out of kind of like security reasons, like, well, you know, insurance, uh, but, but doesn't really want to change, at that moment, you can withhold forgiveness. And there are even certain sins that a priest cannot automatically, immediately forgive. And it has to be scaled up <laughs> to a bishop, for instance, or to the pope. So, um, but all, always with that same secrecy. It's not that, hey, I'll fax your, your uh, faxing, nobody faxes. I'll, I'll email your sins to the bishop. You go see him and just, he'll, he'll do the additional part. That's not how it works. But you can encourage someone to first do other things before, before you grant that forgiveness. And it's not, again, it's not the priest who grants forgiveness. It's God who grants forgiveness, but it's the priest who affirms that those sins are forgiven. And that brings me to the, the situation uh, uh, in, in the United States. Now, of course, the church has uh, been in the center of a lot of attention because of the uh, huge huge sins that have been committed by priests, by bishops, by cardinals even, um, uh, against vulnerable people, uh, especially uh, abuse, rape, you, you name it. The, the worst things, it's completely unimaginable, but it has happened, and the church needs to continue to acknowledge that that has happened and that the church is a, ch- a church of sinners. Um, is a very good remedy against uh, any form of pride uh, or uh, attitude of feeling super, superior to other people. The, the, the church has been rightfully humiliated because of those sins. But now there is uh, a call in uh, uh, certain countries and also in, uh, in parts of the United States, especially in California, that priests just like other healthcare uh, professionals, let's say doctors or psychologists or therapists, that they that the law um, should force these priests that as soon as they hear about abuse, that they they have to break the seal of confession and have the the uh, um, the what you call it the the law <laughs> that law would force them to um, the legal obligation, that's the word that I was looking for, the legal obligation to report that person and the crimes that that person has committed to the law, thereby breaking the seal of confession. And that is a bridge too far for the Catholic Church and is also a very grave danger for the freedom of religion. I understand the reasoning behind it. If criminals can... Can can find refuge in the sacrament of reconciliation and get the feeling that it's okay that you know I've confessed those sins and now it's okay and then and 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 whereas the priest has knowledge of that person being um, mentally ill uh, a grave abuser that may likely uh, fall back into into that behavior um, then then we should protect the the future victims of that person. And perhaps even also do justice to the former victims of that person that comes to confession. However, the seal of confession and this secrecy is so vital for the essence of the sacraments that a priest who would break the seal of confession incurs automatic excommunication, which means that that 
breaking the seal of confession, telling a judge or to going to the police and, hey, I just confessed this guy and he's, he told me this and this and here's where you can find him, that would be a grave sin, for the, a mortal sin. It would cut him off of the community of the church. And that's what excommunication is. He's, he puts himself outside of the communion of the church. And the church will uphold that. And it's l- what they call in Latin lete sententiae. So it doesn't even have to be confirmed by a judge or by a, a, a ecclesial court or something like that. The moment a priest breaks a seal of confession, he is excommunicated. Um, and that is something you cannot ask of priests. What you can do, and that is, I think, where the discussion needs to take place, is we can make sure that priests are very professional in the way that they deal with people that come to them with these sins that have hurt other people and may constitute uh, constitute a danger for the future. In those cases, what we need is professional pastoral help. And uh, But you cannot force a priest to break the seal of confession. And priests will, I, I tell you this, priests will go to jail because of this. I would rather go to jail, spend the rest of my life in prison, rather than break the seal of confession. And that has, in a way, very little to do with my commitment to protecting the weak and the children against abusers or anything. But it is, if you break the seal of confession, basically you break the sacrament, you break... Uh, the the possibility of redemption for certain types of sinners, and that is something that God wouldn't want. And so that that is kind of the um, the 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 very grave danger that is uh, well the, the 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 issue that is endangering um, the sacrament of confession right now in California. Um, where uh, they are have a piece of proposed legislation that is currently going through the state senate um, to to force to to obligate legally priests to break the seal of confession in certain cases and uh bishop baron uh, has uh, written a very good article which i uh, will uh, link in the show notes where he alerts not only the the catholics of california or the american catholics but also catholics in other parts of the world to this issue to this problem and i think and i what i really hope is that this will start a conversation between the legislative uh, authorities and the church about how can we both protect the victims how can we help the perpetrators um and how can we protect the uh, independence of the church and the sanctity of this very vital sacrament for the Catholic Church, and that needs discussion because I think that there's a lot there are a lot of misunderstandings about what confession is, how it works, and what and and also about priests and how they deal with issues like this. And a final thing that I'm going to say about it is that a lot of this this proposed legislation is based on actually an almost hypothetical case because the true sinners or the let's say the criminals that actually don't really want to be forgiven want to i don't know ease their conscience and and uh, wiggle their way out of uh, uh, i don't know eternal damnation by you know I'll just get a, a, a small confession in and I can just do what I want those people don't come to confession confession itself is a huge step and the graver the sin the harder it is for people to 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 turn to return to god and so uh, it's not that like every week we have child molesters walking into the confessional and saying hey i'd like to be forgiven so that next week i can i can perpetrate some more crimes that doesn't happen and in the case that that some people that are seriously deranged have very very grave dangerous issues a priest should be formed that he's wise enough to deal with that even in a, in a in a way that can help the perpetrator to seek help and to you can uh you can ask a person to first go repair things 
before you just tell that person, oh, all your sins are forgiven and I would just go in peace and do it again. That's not how the sacrament works. So anyway, I wanted to bring this to your attention because it's such a beautiful sacrament. It's so important, but also the church is going to be in these situations more and more. Uh, The more society does not understand Catholic sacramental theology anymore, Um, And also, the more the church keeps bringing up these dark pages of misbehavior and becomes completely, um, literally incredible uh, and and loses its its moral authority because of the sins of her own members, I think this this will create clashes and maybe ultimately people will go to prison for, for upholding, you know, what they believe in. So, very, very tricky situation. In a very complicated discussion, but uh, sometimes it's good to talk about it here on the show. When did you become an expert in thermonuclear astrophysics? Last night. The packet. The extraction theory papers. Am I the only one who did the reading? Well, it's it's time to talk about books. I've been uh, reading some more, uh, not as much as I wanted to, but I've been reading some more of the uh, Eye of the World, first book in the um, Wheel of Time series. And I felt frustrated that I read so slowly, especially if you're listening to audiobooks. I make no progress whatsoever. I love it to go out for for an eight-hour walk and listen to an audiobook. But if I would read for eight hours, I would have already finished the book. And I've always been a bit intrigued by, you know, these hacks of how can I, how can I read faster? How can I read more? Part of it is, of course, habits. You need to, if you want to read more, you have to read more and just give up other stuff. Uh, watch less TV, for instance. But there are also ways to read better and to read faster. And I want to uh, recommend a, a YouTube documentary that I recently saw. Uh, which is called Bookstores, How to Read More Books in the Golden Age of Content. Uh, the link is in the show notes. And it's it's a great documentary. It's filmed uh, by a guy, I, I didn't know him before. He's got a, a couple of documentaries up there. And a lot of it is filmed by himself, or mo- almost everything is filmed by himself. Um, and he goes and visits these amazing libraries all over the world. So he travels Europe and in, in, in Portugal and in Spain. He's in these Harry Potter-like libraries. And, and his love for books just oozes out of that documentary. And he speaks with a lot of other people that are fascinated and passionate about books. And But then he also goes to this fast read, like the guy, one of these guys that is one of the fastest readers on the planet who gives him tips like, don't read word for word, but use your finger the opposite of what we've been taught in school. Use your finger and move it over the page and try to follow your finger. And then that alone increased his reading speed with 20%, just moving the finger. And then ultimately the thing is, instead of reading, you have to experience a book. And with proper training, you can glance over pages and you're so immersed in the story that your brain will get like chunks. There are people that can read entire paragraphs in one in one blink of an eye, they capture the gist of those paragraphs. And uh, so speed reading is definitely something that your brain can learn and can acquire. Is it always the best thing to do? Probably not. I did a lot of speed reading when I was studying uh, philosophy, and I had to really wade through hundreds of pages of Hegel in German, and it was just, oh, so hard and so complex and... Then you had to read like two, three books for for uh, for an exam, and I would just push through those books at full speed. But that's not the that's not the most relaxing way to read, of course. And so when I read a, 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 just a novel just to enjoy myself, well, I don't care how fast I read. I just want to be in that world. And actually, there are some books that I don't want to read fast because I want to be in that world as long as possible. So, <laughs> The Hobbit, I, I, I just want to dwell in that place. And, and, and that's also true for uh, The Wheel of Time. It's a, it's a nice, real great Tolkien-esque fantasy world. And I don't mind that it takes me three weeks to read this book. Because if it takes me three weeks, it means I'm in that world for three weeks. And it, it, it just... So, but it's a great documentary. Go check it out. And let me know what you thought. Again, the link is in the trailer. We need to talk science fiction here for a moment, and more specifically, especially for the fans that are watching this live on YouTube, we need to talk Star Wars, because 
No live stream is complete without a little bit of Star Wars. And this week, there was not a little bit of Star Wars. There was a ton of Star Wars. And of course, I'm talking about the Vanity Fair photo shoot by Anne Leibovitz, or Leibovitch. Never know how to pronounce her name. And those photos and the accompanying article are amazing. I see aliens. Little aliens from outer space. And how are things in outer Plutonia? How many times have I told you not to wear your space boots in the house? Go to shape. I mean, you can donate my body to science fiction. Get your suit on! We need you! This is the year of Star Wars, and it's the year of Star Wars 9. The epic conclusion, and it's going to be epic, believe me, the epic conclusion of this nine-movie saga. My all-time favorite mythology, my all-time my all-time favorite fairy tale, and it spans generations, literally, and it spans genres, and it is all coming to an end in The Rise of Skywalker. Very, very little has leaked out. I think this is one of the best, uh, the mo- the the, be- the the best efforts that Disney has ever done or or Lucasfilm to protect the storyline. We know almost nothing. We yeah, we've seen the trailer and it was like oh, the Emperor is back. What? And you see glimpses, but we know nothing. That's all we know. There's a lot of speculation. There are some supposed leaks and some supposed insiders, but we we will know for sure only when we see the movie for real. I, for my part, I'm very much avoiding spoilers. I don't want to hear too much. But I can, with confidence, look at the article and the photos um, that are published this week in Vanity Fair. Uh, if you haven't seen the photos yet or read the article, it's online on the website of the Vanity Fair. Just pause this p- podcast. Go look at them, drool, cheer, cry, and then come back and restart the podcast. Welcome back. <laughs> now, really, those photos, oh my goodness, so fantastic. So Anne Leibovitch has been uh, portraying the Star Wars uh, actors and also secondary characters, always a lot of aliens also in those, uh, in those sh- uh, photo shoots, as well as the, 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 the filming locations themselves and the people that are involved in creating this, this movie. Uh, She has done that for all nine movies, if I'm not mistaken. And so she was uh, invited on the set, or one of the sets, of episode nine. And it's in the desert of Jordania. So this time, they didn't go to Tunisia. They went to Jordania. And they filmed a sand planet, which is is identified in the uh, accompanying article as a new planet that we have not visited before. But it looks like Tatooine. It looks like Jakku. A little bit more alien in a certain way. It's it's very spectacular there. I think Lawrence of Arabia was filmed there, among other movies. And so it looks fantastic. And um, one of the first things that you read in that article is they wanted to go to real locations, use as many practical effects as possible. Very much in contrast, and this has been a J.J. Abrams thing uh, for a long time, let's not make the same mistake that George Lucas made when he made the prequels, where it was all green screen. And there is always something that you, you can tell that it's fake. That's what was my big beef with, with, the, with the prequels. It is all so CGI. And for this movie, they made it much more practical. And the, everything that... Did you know that that final scene in The Last Jedi, I think we're, we're beyond spoiler, not non-spoiler territory here, but the moment where Rey uses the Force to open that crevice in the rock so that the few remaining rebels can flee, and you see all those rocks hovering in the sky? Those were real rocks. That was not CGI. I was convinced that was CGI. It would be so easy to do that with CGI. And, and uh, it turns out they were all... Uh, hanging there in the air, suspended, well, not by magic or the force, of course, but with wires. But nevertheless, that's how far they went to make sure that everything we saw is real. Um, For this movie, very much the same thing. We see this chase. There are, you even see like parts of what looks like uh, Luke Skywalker's land speeder from from Star Wars 4. Very intriguing stuff. We also see a lot of the cast members together. The accompanying article is very worth reading. J.J. Abrams uh, opens up about 
how what he was trying to do with uh, with the Force Awakens, where he said, "I was making a movie that I felt." Uh, was how what a Star Wars story was supposed to be, and he that's why that movie is so similar to A New Hope, to Empire Strikes Back. Why? Well, there's so many resonances with what we've seen before, and for a lot of people, that was a, a reason for them to to not dislike the movie, but to be critical of the movie. It's way too much like what we've seen before. Well, J.J. Abrams says now that we had this this last. Let Jedi movie in between where everything changed, and I, I guess for, I gather that uh, uh, Ryan Johnson had had changed a lot of the, the plot lines that he had originally in mind when he when J.J. Abrams created uh, uh, the Force Awakens. Well, those plot lines cannot be could could not be developed anymore because Ryan Johnson just changed so many of those plot lines and gave it a new spin. And for this movie, J.J. Abrams says I I wanted to really follow my guts and do something that is not perhaps not exactly the Star Wars that people expect it to be or what it has always been but I wanted to do and he talks about details I mean it's not going to be a totally different movie but he like he wanted to to do something new something that was not good because it was Star Wars but because it was just good in general, and it, and he wanted to tell that particular story, that makes me super curious. I love it when an, when a, when a director can pour his heart into into this and create something new. And also, uh, th- there are a lot of tantalizing tidbits in that interview, especially when he talks about uh, Carrie Fisher and how they started to write new scenes around existing footage that they had and existing dialogue and how that almost, that's one of the few times that he mentions that it almost feels like a miracle. There's something spiritual going on. Something that, and I I think I, that may be true, you know. Sometimes art surpasses the intentions of the creator, of the artist. It's like music. When you go to a, a concert and... Uh, and you have this entire orchestra, and they're all playing notes, and they're all professionals. But then something happens that makes that experience go way beyond just the technicalities of the notes that are played or the guy that is doing the direction. And it becomes something in itself, something transcendence. And that is why art is, is a road to God. In, in, in true art hints at the mystery, hints at, 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 at the the. the artist with a capital A that is behind all that, the creator that helps us, that makes us able to create in his, in his footsteps in a way, because we are made to resemble God. And so J.J. Uh, Abrams kind of describes something similar. He was starting to think, well, maybe something can, can be done to finish Leia's storyline with the existing footage. And humanly, it was impossible. And then he says, it just happened. And I was like, almost as if he was witnessing a miracle that was happening. And it's not just his genius, and he's a very good storyteller. But sometimes in art, it gets a life of it. A story gets a life on, uh, of its own. And, and there is something transcendent happening. Anyway, I don't want to completely, you know, turn, turn the, the creation of Star Wars into a mythology in itself. But I was really fascinated it was fascinating to read that um uh, we get some hints also adam driver is interviewed about uh his character kylo ren and will or will he not pursue that kind of beginning relationship with ray and what is the nature of that relationship etc he kind of keeps it in the middle nobody really spills anything but um there is this one photo that is super intriguing. You see Luke Skywalker in his, you know, the attire that we know from when we meet him on uh, on the island. And, and he's standing with uh, R2-D2 to his side. And you see he's surrounded by burning remains of something. But this is not the young, the younger version. It's, so I wonder if this is, this is, of course, could very well be a flashback. And so this this may be um, the attack by the Knights of Ren, which we will see that has been confirmed. The Knights of Ren finally, those those dark helpers of Kylo, will will get their own you know moment of, of fame, um, where they destroy the temple that uh, that Luke uses to train new Jedi. So it may be that, but then the beard and his entire look 
is not the, the the slightly you know younger version of Luke Skywalker that that we know from from the Last Jedi flashbacks. So I'm wondering. The, I'm starting to 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 wonder. What if the rise of Skywalker is not a metaphor, and it's not about another Skywalker, but it's about the rise, the resurrection of Luke Skywalker? Whoa! I I don't think they they'll go there, but. What if? Anyway, so intriguing. Go check it out. It is absolutely amazing. And and it both shows you a lot and and it shows you nothing. And and but it makes me so hyped about this movie. I think it's going to be perhaps the best Star Wars movie so far. We are on the cutting edge of technology. Wow. Well, what does that mean? Let's plug it in. It's going to say, hey, I see you plugged in a new device, and it's going to load in the appropriate drivers. You'll notice that this scanner built... Whoa. Well, all your technology stuff, it just ends in disaster. But there is one more thing. We need to talk about one more thing, and that is technology. And more specifically, uh, about phones, cell phones. You know that I'm looking for a new cell phone to replace my uh, very uh, aging <laughs> iPhone 6 Plus, which has been a very trusty phone, but it's so slow now. And um, and I have a lot of requests. First of all, I don't want to spend too much money. I'm Dutch. So a $1,000 phone for me out of the question. That is not going to happen. I'm looking at my my maximum is about half of it. And even that, I, I think that's expensive. 500 bucks for a phone? Anyway, I also need it to be uh, very, very good with video, both uh, on the front camera and on the back camera, because I use my phone to make television programs. So it needs to be good. I mean, I filmed the entire Camino with just this phone. I want something that is much better than what Apple was able to do with the 6 Plus six years ago. Um, but it has to be a lot of times the front camera is not as good as the back camera. So I want to have parity there. I also really need a huge battery. One of my biggest issues with this phone is no ma- even though this is a 6 Plus and has a large battery, I still can't make it through a day of intense use usage. So when I go for a walk, I listen to a podcast or an audio book. I use this to do a live stream and to take some photos, post them on Facebook, this this phone is empty in four hours. I want something that lasts an entire day and preferably even more than a day. And I'm thinking back of that trip that I, or the, the walk that I did to Santiago. I didn't have the ability to, to recharge the phone every evening and I still needed it the next day. So what if I could find a phone that has a huge battery, has an amazing camera on the front and on the back and is affordable? Well, I've been looking for months now, and I haven't found it. Until last week, where I saw the presentation of a new phone, which, for me, has everything I need in a phone. And there, there is no equal, uh, at least not at the moment. And that phone is the Asus, I think it's called Asus, we say Asus in, uh, in the Netherlands, but Asus, uh, Zenfone 6. The Zenfone 6 has a 5,000 milliamp battery. So it can actually last two days instead of one. It has a very, one of the most revolutionary things that they did was they made a movable camera. So there's a camera unit on the back. And if you press a button, it will swivel upwards. And the same camera is used as the front-facing camera, which means, and it's not just one camera, there are actually two lenses in that camera module. One is wide-angle, which is also a requirement that I have because wide-angle is super useful and has a regular uh, high-quality 48, uh, what is it, 48-something. <laughs> anyway, a very good lens, a Sony lens that is used in a lot of phones nowadays. It's got two great lenses, but they're the same lenses for you, for if you, you want to use them as as your regular camera, but you can also flip them upwards and use them for front-facing camera. It will be the same quality, same wide balance, same everything. And that is vital for television production, for for, for vlogs. And plus, it has 
a very old-fashioned but very vital microphone in or or headphone out. It's both 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 ways. And of course, uh, Apple has been touting that they removed the headphone jack because they wanted to create more room for the battery. Well, here is Asus, and they just leave it in, and they give the give us the biggest battery that I know in any phone. So. It can be done if they really want to. Um, also, the, the reason that I wanted this headphone jack is not because I'm old-fashioned and I don't want to buy Blu-ray uh, or Blu-ray <laughs> Bluetooth headphones. I do have a pair of Bluetooth headphones, but it is because I need to have an external microphone, and there are no good external microphones available that are wireless. And built-in microphones are terrible, terrible. Is that a Jar Jar reference? Probably it is. Anyway, so um, Asus Zenfone 6, that is, what it, that is what it's going to be. It's going to be available anytime now, and I can't wait to do some vlogging with it. And of course, once I do, you'll get to see it on my YouTube channel. So make sure you're subscribed to the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Father Roderick, and also uh, pass it on if you know other people that uh, may enjoy this content. I need word of mouth because, well... That's the only budget that I have. Thanks to my patrons for supporting me on such a, uh, in such a great way on a monthly basis. Again, if you want to help me out, check it out at uh, patreon.com slash Father Roderick. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. See you soon.